This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Jim Hollis. Jim is a licensed Jungian analyst practicing in Houston, Texas, and the author of 13 books, as well as the Sounds True audio learning program, Through the Dark Wood, Finding Meaning in the Second Half of Life. I spoke with Jim about the importance of realizing our real self versus our adapted self moving through experiences of fear with courage and persistence, and what the most important questions are that we ask ourselves as we approach the end of our life. Here's my conversation with Jim Hollis on Underneath the Midlife Crisis. Jim, I've known people who have said, I'm having a midlife crisis, an early midlife crisis. I may only be 25 or 30, but it certainly feels like a midlife crisis. And then people who are quite a bit older, maybe they're 60 and saying, maybe I'm having a delayed midlife crisis. So what is the midlife crisis? Can it happen at any age? Or is there a specific period in life where we say, oh, that person's truly in a midlife crisis? Well, I think we have a crisis any time uh, the map that we're carrying, either the conscious map or the, the, the unconscious map that we've inherited from our family and our culture, whenever the map doesn't quite fit the terrain, we're going to feel uh, disconnected or confused or disoriented. That can happen to any person at any stage of life. And interestingly enough, the majority of people that I see in uh, therapy are in their 50s and 60s. So. They're still going through the question of uh, recovering a sense of personal authority, you know, what is true for me and how do I live that in this world. And That's an ongoing task. Uh, many times this surfaces at uh, what we might chronologically call midlife between 35 and, say, 50, because by that time one has become uh, conscious enough to have an ego strong enough to really look at one's life and say, uh, what's going on here? And if I've, Even if I've done the right things, why does it not feel right or why does... Uh, why are the, the discord within my relationship or my work? And uh, secondly, we've been out there doing it long enough to begin to see patterns, and we realize that um, something's going on here. And sometimes people um, don't really stop and, and ask, you know, what's this about? Who am I apart from my roles? And what is it that um, I'm, I'm really wanting to do with my life? And um, so therefore, it will go underground and pop up in some other place. So it's it's an ongoing uh, life experience, but by midlife we've often had enough um, experience by then to realize that uh, something's going on here and there's a discrepancy between what I expected from my life and, and what I'm actually experiencing. Now you said if we don't engage with what's happening, it may quote-unquote go underground and pop up someplace else. What, what did you mean by that? Well, whatever we don't face consciously is not going to go away. It, it just goes underground, and it can show up in our body as somatic disorders. It can show up in uh, our emotional life in terms of depressions, for example, or anxiety states. Or we can be trying to treat it unconsciously through addictions. Or um, it'll, it'll be spilling into our relationships, into our children. The point is it'll, it'll go somewhere. And... Um, 
part of my task as a therapist, and I think all of us who want to live a more sort of thoughtful, considered life, is to begin to read the, the, the messages that are all around us, the symptoms. From a psychodynamic standpoint, we welcome the symptoms because that, that's a clue from our own psyche that uh, it's expressing a protest. Now, for example, if, if one is depressed, we might say other than biological causes of depression, you know, why has the psyche withdrawn its support from the places where I'm putting all my energy and uh, where my values are? And w wouldn't it make sense to uh, begin to ask a different kind of question, such as what does the psyche really want of me here? And uh, to begin to say, all right, maybe it's time to go back to the drawing board and uh, examine who I am and uh, what, what's unique about my journey and to become more thoughtful around that. So it seems that one of the things you're saying here right at the outset of our dialogue is that when, quote-unquote, symptoms arise, and, and you mean by symptoms sort of anything that seems off in us? or what Anything that's distressing enough to get our attention and perhaps it is interruptive of our lives uh, is a symptomatic expression. Okay, so that when things that are distressing arise, that instead of just trying to simply get rid of them or put something on top of them, sure. we, we're engaging and, and saying, what's really going on underneath this? Sure. It's a, it's a natural tendency, and I think, frankly, abetted by the, the nature of our society to say, how quickly can I get rid of this, rather than ask a different question, why has this come to me? What is this asking of me? Uh, of what do I need to become more thoughtful, more mindful? Which is a whole different set of questions, and you know, people don't come to see me just because they were in the neighborhood and thought they'd pop in for a chat. They're, they're there because whatever is going on in their life has become sufficiently distressing. And, um, you know, it hasn't gone away by the normal treatment, whether it's been medication or alcohol or, or simply renewed efforts. Uh, and it's at that point that often a person feels a sense of failure. And, Again, asking, you know, why is it that my efforts are not uh, producing the outcomes that I want? For example, I was just talking with someone whose basic early life experience in the family of origin was never being seen for who she was, never being valued. She, she sort of had to twist herself into uh, various contortions to sort of wrest from people um, the approval and affection and so forth. And here she is now at age 51, still doing the same thing in her professional and personal life. And... It hadn't occurred to her that the origins of this were, um, you know, set up a long time ago, and how there's a kind of continuing setup that uh, leads her to continuously be looking to other people for affirmation and for support. And you know, there's a realistic uh, level to this. If we don't feel that our relationships are reciprocal, then we need to to change them. But what was imposing itself on her life and her her relationships was the the old agenda. And again, with a kind of uh, lifelong, continuous distress that she was never feeling seen or, or valued. Now, I want to make sure I understand the map that you're working with. So as a therapist and somebody who's looked deeply at these questions for a long time, when someone comes into your office and presents whatever their distressing symptom is, mm -hmm. what is it that you, you believe that, that the, you said the psyche 
yes. is sending a message. So what, what do you think is going on in when, when people are reporting their symptoms and whatever kind of crisis, midlife crisis, they may be saying? Sure. Well, the word psyche is a kind of ambiguous word, but it refers to the deepest level of our being, which is um, seeking its own health, its own wholeness, its own um, uh, presentation in the world. And um, wherever it's frustrated or thwarted, there's going to be a, a symbolic protest, and that's, again, what we call symptoms. So I think what I would try to do is to educate people, to inform them that their symptoms have a meaning and that they, they're not just there randomly, they've come for a reason, and that rather than simply trying to rid ourselves of them as quickly as possible, which is an understandable motive, but to rather take a different attitude and, and to, to ask the question, what, what changes are being asked of me? Uh, what, what attitudes perhaps have to shift? And maybe to what degree am I carrying out uh, the project of um, other people's lives? I, I have often worked with people that we would consider extremely accomplished by external standards, but inwardly have never particularly felt uh, permission to be who they really are, permission to feel what they really feel, permission to desire what they desire with their life and, and to uh, pursue that, and, and therefore become you know, maybe very adept at uh, serving the ideas and values that were given to them by their family of origin or their culture, but again, the, the wedge within their own psychological reality uh, is driven deeper and deeper and deeper, and the, and the distress goes straighter. And so what you're pointing to, and I think this is really interesting, in the program that you recorded with Sounds True, Through a Dark Wood, Finding Meaning in the Second Half of Life, you begin by talking about the false self that we developed in our family of origins. And you actually point to these two, you call them shadow governments that rule our lives, these two different categories of mm -hmm. adaptation mm -hmm. that uh, because we felt powerless when we were young yes. and because we were afraid of abandonment, these two categories, we adapted in, in various ways. And I'm wondering if you could go into both of these forms of adaptation in a little bit of detail and talk about how they would flower in someone's life later, what we would see if we adapted in, in either of these ways under these shadow governments. Certainly. Um, we all do make those adaptations, and of course our survival depends upon that. We are brought into life uh, tiny, uh, vulnerable, dependent, and um, the dependence that we have lasts for years, in fact, and therefore we have to pay attention to the experiences that we have and to what the environment seems to be saying to us about us or about how the world uh, functions out there. And so the two threats to us, as you mentioned, were to be overwhelmed by the world, by a dominant personality or life circumstances, or to feel abandoned and disconnected. And so in the, in the face of the feeling of overwhelmment, the, the central message that every child gets, and we all got it to some degree, was, you know, the world's big and you're not. The world's powerful, and you're not. Now, how, do you go in, how are you going to handle that? And so we all develop, for example, what are really logical forms of behavior if we understand the emotional premise. In other words, we don't do crazy things. We do logical things if we understand the emotional premise. And the emotional premise may have been true at another time and place or, or was even a misperception, but it gets locked in. So, for example, 
in the face of the power of the other around us, that could be our partner or our work environment or the world itself, our, our first response and the most protective would be avoidance. And so we develop all kinds of patterns of avoidance, simple avoidance, procrastination, suppression, repression, projection onto others, distraction. I mean, we live in a culture that allows people to avoid themselves by, uh, by distraction and uh, various forms of disassociation. Now, now Jim, I'm just gonna, we're going to pause here for a moment because I'm not quite tracking with you. Why, why as an adult do I avoid because I felt powerless when I was a kid? Because early on we learned that in avoidance there was a, 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 a chance of preserving our psychological integrity. We stay out of harm's way that way. In other words, the function of the adaptive personality, what D.W. Winnicott called the false self, is to get our needs met as best we can and to avoid crippling anxiety and to avoid uh, punitive actions or reactions from the world around us. So it's, again, a very logical thing. And therefore, as adults, we'd have to say, well, where are the places where I'm routinely avoidant? Am I avoidant of emotional intimacy? Am I avoidant of dealing with uh, value conflicts in my uh, work uh, environment. Now, the second pattern of adaptation to the overwhelming character of the world is um, the power complex. And most relationships and institutions are riven with power complexes where we seek control over the other. And the third pattern, again, very logically, in the face of the presumptive power of the other, is compliance. Give the world what it wants. And so we'd have to say, all right, where are the stuck places in my life? Where are the places that routinely cause me problems with my own journey? And, and they will be showing up as patterns of avoidance or where I get caught in power conflicts or where I am compliant and, and sort of give away the store, as it were. Uh, codependence is a popular term these days for good reason, reasons because all of us learned at some level the adaptation to the demands of the environment are, are going to be sort of advantageous for us. But again, at, at what price? Um, when I was a child, I was told repeatedly, you're, you're here to be good at all costs, and the opposite of good was bad. But from a psychological standpoint, I would say a reflexive goodness ceases to be good, and it, it results in the loss of one's integrity. So the, ab the opposite of being good today, I would say, would be to be um, authentic. You know, am I an authentic person in, in my relationships? Mm -hmm. Now, in the face of the other sort of life crisis or existential dilemma that uh, the world doesn't meet us halfway or doesn't meet our needs, and we have fears of abandonment, often the child will internalize that as being about me person I was just referring to a few moments ago in terms of seeing in her friend's behavior or family behavior routinely people sort of letting her down. And part of the, the reason for that is that was a pattern early on in life, and so that got to be especially sensitized area for her. And therefore, I will attend to identify with that and either wind up again in patterns of avoidance or self-sabotage to confirm that internalized negative image, in other words, we identify ourselves with a sense of deficit, or people are driven to uh, accomplishment as, as forms of saying, look how good I am, or how worthy I am, or, you know, and, and, and one of the clues is when they do get successes in their life, and maybe even win the applause of others, it's never quite enough. It's never really satisfying because the, the need it's trying to fill runs, runs much deeper than that. 
And again, the second um, pattern would be sort of the narcissistic uh, power complex where I may be trying to use people consciously or unconsciously, employees, family members, children, for my own self-esteem uh, to, to make up for that deficit in the past. Or thirdly, a person is driven by an inordinate need for approval and, and connection. And this can be the birth of addictions because often people will transfer their emotional needs to uh, substances, for example. Um, we, we have so many food disorders and, and yet we live in the most abundant culture in human history. And clearly, um, material food does not satisfy our spiritual and psychological hungers. So uh, the inordinate need for the connection with the other produces uh, problems of, of another kind, too. So the point being is when we look at our life history, and that's the place to start, we'd have to say, where are the patterns? Where are the places where uh, we repeatedly are engaged in something very familiar, again, non-productive, circular in character? Uh, perhaps we're, we are self-sabotaging or harmful to ourselves or to others. And it's at those places you're going to find the most archaic of, of defenses that were apparently necessary for the child in the past, but uh, become uh, encumbrances in, in the present. And, and we all have them. The question is, can we uh, make them conscious and uh, can we take them on and realize that they are you know, addressing the agendas of long ago and far away. So, Jim, I just, I'm just i going to slow you down just a little bit. Hang with me here. Certainly. What you're saying is that even if we had fabulous parents, all of us felt powerless in a certain kind of way and adapted consequently. Certainly. And that all of us were afraid of abandonment and adapted, and that every single person has created a bunch of adaptations around these two that you call shadow governments. Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes. And, and we had to adapt. And there's nothing wrong in that. that. That's part of how we survive and function. And even in the best of environments, um, you know, life will bring these things to us. So I would say of the patterns I had just described very, very quickly and briefly, um, we all have all of them, but they'll show up in different places in our lives according to different stimuli and situations. And Again, they represent understandable but archaic responses and, again, are based upon the um, dependency and, and lack of consciousness of a child and they tend to get locked into the um, adult functioning on a reflexive basis. I mean, this is what Jung meant by the idea of the complex. The complex is simply a, a cluster of our history that's charged with a lot of energy and when it's activated, it... Uh, produces a familiar script, who am I, who, who are you, and um, how do we relate to each other, and uh, no wonder these uh, patterns keep showing up in our lives, because we're serving the old scripts. And then help me understand how something might appear as a symptom in a midlife crisis that you would track back to either this fear uh -huh. in childhood that I'm going to be abandoned or a feeling of powerlessness. Certainly. Well, one of the, the classic symptoms of this would be depression. And, you know, if, if I've done the right things, why is it that I don't have energy for my life or it, it doesn't feel emotionally satisfying? And again, the answer is because maybe what we're doing is, is serving, you know, these other agendas rather than the way in which our own psychological reality wishes to be honored uh, in the world by different kinds of choices. Or another common arena will show up as uh, relational difficulties. 
because it's in the field of intimate relationships that our earliest dynamics will be most commonly produced. And, you know, we can often maintain a facade at work and can um, sort of filter things, but um, you can't do that at home. And when you're in a relationship, it comes closer to the original experience of openness, vulnerability, and the continuous presence of the other. So it's, it's dramatically unfair to a relationship to impose these patterns from the past, but since they're spilling into our lives unconsciously, we can't help it. So, uh, for example, I might be depending on, on a partner for my self-worth, or I might look, be looking to them to um, uh, compensate for something that I'm not addressing myself. And so, for example, it can lead us to what I consider a heroic question in relationships, namely, what am I asking of that person? that I really need to be asking of myself. Now, usually, that question doesn't occur to us. Uh, we'd rather blame the other for their deficiencies. And uh, rather than uh, sort of bring it back home and say, now, what am I bringing to the table? How much of this is truly related to the, the present relationship? And how much of it is, a, is an old paradigm or pattern? And where am I needing to be accountable myself? And Part of my task as a therapist is to help people get to a point of saying, well, you know, that really is my task. And um, that's something that uh, I need to be a little more realistic in, in my expectations of, of receiving from others. People are often critical in today's world about, quote-unquote, talk therapy. Mm -hmm. I mean, here you are, people are coming in with these kinds of issues, and you're, you're talking to them, mm -hmm. and you're helping. So I guess one of my questions is, what do you think happens in the therapeutic encounter that helps people really resolve these old issues. And for people who are critical, the second part of that kind of approach, what resource or course of action can they take? Well, that's a very good question. And, and first of all, the nature of the therapeutic relationship really is a mystery. We don't know how it works for sure. We all know that at some level, it's important for each of us to have truly been heard by another, to have been seen by another, to be valued by another in a consistent um, container uh, without judgment going on. And, and that's not nothing. That's something profound because it may be the first time we've experienced that in our lives. Secondly, the other's perspective is going to cast light on our lives from, from outside the frame of our own complexes and our own self-referential systems. For example, in, in my work as a Jungian analyst, we often work with dreams, and most people would think they don't dream, but we, we do dream, all of us do, and it's profound to realize that each of us has within some mode of intelligence, wisdom, insight, and investment in our well-being that our, our own nature produces these dreams, the tracking of which over time leads to an enlarged perspective. Uh, Jung said once, there's a two-million-year-old person inside of each of us, and it would make sense to speak to that person from time to time in terms of their uh, life wisdom. It's the wisdom of nature, not necessarily of our own culture. And so uh, I think from the standpoint of the therapeutic relationship, the real question is, can I get insight into my life patterns? where they've come from, what they're about, and, and what is really wanting to come into the world through me, which is a different question. This is not about self-absorption. It's not about narcissism. It's actually humbling work. 
if I say what wants to come into the world through me, I'm, I'm really putting myself in a position of serving that. And that's quite different than feeling that uh, I'm the boss and I'm running the show. But I think when people can um, get a better sense of that, they, they find their life uh, filled uh, with a greater sense of purposefulness and a greater uh, byproduct of, of, of meaning. It doesn't spare them from conflict or suffering, or they may not find people around them understand what they're experiencing, but, but they begin to feel the validation and, and worth of their own journey. Because I think at the end of our lives, we, we want two things to have been true. One, that we lived our lives and not someone else's. And secondly, that um, we, we stood somewhere in relationship to that which is larger than we. And, and serving, uh, you know, the life of the soul in whatever form you want to understand that is one of those modes of encountering the transcendent. And in, in doing that, uh, I think there's a deep sense of um, purpose and satisfaction that, that, that comes to one. Interestingly enough, a lot of recent studies have tended to show the uh, inadequacy of medication to address these questions. Recently, there have been a lot of studies that indicate antidepressants are overblown in terms of their effectiveness, and the best long-term outcomes are really coming from talk therapy. And um, one would have to ask, now, why would that be the case? And I think that if we think of it again as the kind of informed, sustained, and disciplined conversation around the meaning of one's own journey, why wouldn't that be life-changing? Why wouldn't that lead to a different perspective? When Jung said we all walk in shoes too small for us, he meant those old adaptive uh, psychologies, and necessarily adaptive, of course. But at the end, they are also constrictive. And, um, you know, our own psyche wants us to step into a larger life than the one we've been living historically. Now, you said something very interesting to me, that at the end of our life, we want to know two things, that we lived our lives and not someone else's, and that the second is that we were related to something larger than us? Is yes. That, mm -hmm. Let's just start with the first one. We lived our lives and not someone else's. Well, you know, there are threads that run through us all the time, the fragments of um, a person's life history. You know, what, what were the overt messages I got from mother and father? And this is not about blaming. You know, they, they, they were living their journey as best they could, too. It's more about understanding influence and the power of those messages. Um, what were the overt messages? What were the covert messages? What were the things that were acceptable? What were the things that were not permitted? And how do they show up in my life? The real question, it's a very pragmatic question. If I can make those messages conscious, then the question really becomes, so what do they make me do? Or what do they keep me from doing with my own life? That's, that's where it gets to be very, very practical. And secondly, to be able to come to recognize that the um, messages we get may or may not align with our essential nature. And, and the question then comes, well, how would I know that? And that's where we go back to the question of symptoms. If what I'm doing is right, then my energy systems within me will support that. The feeling function will support that. Most of all, I have a sense of reciprocity. As I invest in it, it comes back to me in a sense of satisfaction. Again, not without effort, not without conflict. A person I saw earlier this morning has been a um, frustrated artist, and, and he, in his case, understands that 90% of his task is to show up every day in the face of self-doubt, 
in the face of criticism and, and to somehow wrestle with that empty canvas. And he doesn't have to explain that to anybody. He doesn't have to account for it. He has to say, I'm accountable for what wants to enter the world through me. And, and when I do that, I do have this deep sense of um, purpose and satisfaction that is, is not to be equated with a paycheck and not to be equated with uh, people's approval and understanding. Those are nice things, but, but they're truly secondary in the long run. You know, I can imagine someone listening who's saying, you know, I want to live my life, not someone else's, and yet I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. You know, my parents are dead. It's not about them. I get that. I get these mm-hmm. old, but yet I'm still yeah. afraid. Of course. Well, again, let's remember that the human condition is mortal, and we're fragile, and we're conscious of that the whole way. And... Um, so sort of have a, have a nice day now, right? The, the, the real issue is what do we do with those facts? And I, I think one of the, the most critical pieces in our life is, is not to judge our, our fear-based um, strategies, but to recognize we can't afford to live within them. We can't be contained by them. And that, that our life not be governed by fear, because, again, at the end of our life, I think we'll be more afraid of not having been here, of not having shown up, and that rather than the fears that we'll have to face in uh, dealing with the world. As Jung put it once, he said, there wasn't one person who ever came to me who didn't know intuitively from the beginning what he or she needed to do with their lives. And he said, the question in every therapy is, what task is this person avoiding? In other words, where do I need to grow up? And by growing up mean... I take account of responsibility. I'm accountable for that. And, and I need to, to serve that. And that's more important than whatever the fears are. We can't get rid of the fears. We can't dismiss them. But, but we don't want to give them, you know, the veto rights uh, in the conduct of our life either. How would you help somebody who says, you know, I want to live more of my own life, but I'm afraid that, it, you know, the, the artist, great, but, uh, you know, I won't make any money doing that. Well, a simple, you know, obvious fear. Sure, sure, of course. And, and, you know, the task is we have to pay our bills. That's a legitimate social calling and a social accountability. And, you know, many an artist has had what I'd call a day job and, and did their real soul work uh, elsewhere. Um, you know, nobody pays me to write, for example, and I write at the end of a long work day. And I make my living as a therapist and as a teacher. And uh, writing was always... A, a summons that I had to find a place for, and, and frankly, I, I um, postponed it for many years, too. And I, I think as a result of which, felt a, a deep sense of uh, dissatisfaction in, in that area, a sense of um, sort of self-judgment. And uh, again, you know, I think it was John Lennon who said most of life is about showing up. And um, sometimes it's as simple as that. You know, I need to show up in my life and... Uh, you know, express what wants to be expressed um, through my life. And again, that's not about narcissism or self-absorption. It, it's actually humbling to do that, but, you know, the payoff is in, in this experience of meaning. You've worked with so many different people in a clinical setting. What have you found is the most helpful work in terms of helping people move through their fears so that they can become more of who they really are? Well, I think it's maybe you could sense from our conversation today that the, the single biggest issue and perhaps the most unexpressed in our, our culture is uh, this idea of the soul. And again, a very imprecise term, but that's what the word psyche means in Greek anyhow. It's the soul. 
And what is that word about? It, it has to do with a, a summons to, to something larger than the adaptations and the fears that drive us. We're not going to get rid of those. The question, again, is do, do we sort of take our life on? Do we say, this is what matters to me? And whether it's understood by others or not, I, I have to somehow risk uh, uh, you know, living those values and risking them in this world. And no one said it's going to be easy. You know, there's a, a, a quote from Tibetan Buddhism that says, and did you think the, the path to the Garden of Enlightenment would be easier for you than for those who have gone before you? No, it's, it's difficult. But then don't take the journey. And, and then one realizes that one has thwarted whatever the project that we're carrying for divinity or for nature, whichever metaphor you prefer, uh, intended through us. And, and this is not about, again, popularity or ambition. It's we need to get beyond those things. Those are pseudo-values that in the end have no real-life satisfaction. It's more about, again, feeling from within the confirmation. This is what works for me. This is what feels right. This is what gives me a sense of satisfaction. And if I have to make sacrifices elsewhere, uh, then I'll do that uh, in order to serve this. But the point is I can't, I can't forget the relationship to that transcendent uh, summons that uh, each of us carries within. Mm -hmm. Beautifully said. Now, in the program, Through a Dark Wood, you talk about what it means to, quote-unquote, tolerate the triple A's, ambivalence, anxiety, and ambiguity. Yes. Could you speak to that a bit? Well, they are the necessary companions of our lives. Um, as Heidegger said once, you know, we're, we're, we're born conscious and we are the being towards death. And what he meant in, in that word, he created a new word in German that meant basically we're, we're speeding towards our own dissolution. So that, that gives us pause and, and certainly an, an invitation to thoughtfulness around it. But anxiety goes with the human condition. And whenever we step outside of the map prepared for us by others, we're going to feel uh, ambiguity and ambiguity uh, creates more anxiety. And then we have to deal with the conflict of opposites within us or within our culture, and that, that causes us to experience uh, ambivalence. And, and normally, the combined effect of am anxiety and ambivalence and ambiguity will sort of push us back into the same old, same old, into the familiar, into the known, into the uh, comfortable adaptation. And, and then the life isn't lived. And so if, if we think of the enemies of the world, so to speak, it's, it's not people out there. It's, it's, it's our response to these internally generated emotions, which are common to all of us. And again, to, to what degree you know, do we have a sense in which the life we're living is, is the one that we're supposed to be living? On my computer here, I actually have a quote from the Odyssey, and this is uh, Odysseus speaking. And he says, and I quote, I will stay with it and endure through suffering hardships. And once the heaving sea has shaken my raft to pieces, then I will swim. So what he's really saying there is um, I, I'm going to go where um, I'm supposed to go, and, and nothing is going to keep me from reaching there. Even if the raft that I have um, been riding disintegrates, I'll, I'll learn to swim. And that's uh, taking us back to your first question. Often um, we experience crises when the raft that we counted on is um, waterlogged and uh, taking on the ocean, and then it's time then to swim. 
Focusing for a moment on one of the triple A's on anxiety, it seems that in our culture, if someone's anxious a lot, it's like, oh, that's a really anxious person. It's, it's seen as a negative. Mm-hmm. And yet in the way you're describing it, it seems almost like a necessary aspect of development in order to take a risk moving forward. Sure. I mean, without a measure of anxiety, we would not be alert to the real dangers of the world around us. I mean, we need to learn to look both ways when we cross a busy street. That's, that's obvious. But it's, it's more the crippling effect of anxiety. And one of the things I would try to do both in books and in tapes and, and in therapy is to sort of depathologize our pathology. I mean, many times people have the strange notion that I'm supposed to be free of symptoms, that I'm supposed to not feel anxiety, and I'm not supposed to feel guilt and shame and, and so forth, and to to realize these are normal human experiences. We all have them, and, and people that they see from afar, they're seeing only their personas, they're seeing their resumes, they're seeing their outer presentation, they don't know what they're struggling with within. As I think it was Philo of Alexandria said uh, two millennia ago, he said, be kind. Everyone you meet has a really big problem. So if we remember that, I think we are more likely to um, sort of begin to look at our own emotional life with a greater degree of, of acceptance. I mean, most of us, if we're really involved in a self-inventory, and, and that's one of the reasons why we don't often do it, would not be happy with what we see. We, we find um, moments of cowardice in our life. Uh, we find moments of infidelity to the values that we espouse. Uh, we find ourselves taking the easy way in certain areas or being conflict avoidant and, and so forth. And, and the important thing is to say, all right, you know, that's, that's again part of the human condition. I still need to show up. And the question is, uh, in what areas of my life am I needing to show up, needing to be accountable? and in the end, I'll, I'll feel better for having done that. We'll have claimed a little more territory for ourselves. And, you know, we're not living in this uh, constricted space that our anxiety um, uh, management mechanisms uh, create for us. The subtitle of your book, Finding Meaning in the Second Half of Life, is How to Finally Really Grow Up. Emphasis on this word, really. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I- I'm curious to know, what to you are the qualities or characteristics of someone who's a spiritual grown-up? Well, interestingly enough, that was the publisher's subtitle, not mine, but uh, I can live with it, and I think it's not inappropriate. Uh, being a grown-up spiritually and psychologically means, um, I, first of all, and this sounds very simplistic, but it's, it's hard for us to get there. First of all, um, I'm the only person present in every scene of that long-running soap opera I'll call my life, so I'm accountable for how it happens, how it's turning out, and yes, there are influences upon us, forces that push us in one direction or another, but at the end of the day and the end of a life, we are accountable for the choices we made, so being accountable is step one. Step two, I think, is is, um, saying, all right, it's the summons really to address what needs to be addressed. You can put it this way. He said the opus of life, the work of life, consists of three parts. And he said psychology can only help us with the first part, and that's to give us insight. He said then come the moral qualities of the individual, and he cited specifically courage and persistence. We need the courage to, um, to address what otherwise, as I said, would push us into a corner and keep us from uh, living our journeys. 
And, and we need to keep doing it over time. We need to persist. And many times, sticking something out, in, in enduring and pushing through, will just take us to a different place. It's sort of like saying, right, for the next few years or months, I, I will have to address this issue. And if I do it in a faithful way, in a sustained and disciplined way, I'll be in a different place. I mean, to make an obvious point, I've often said to people who are reluctant to make a change in their life, you know, you're, you're 50 or 40, and, and five years from now and 10 years from now, you'll be 60. Now, how will you feel at that time about the past 10 years? Will you feel that you, you ran from this opportunity, or did you, did you, did you allow the old management of, of fears to take over? Uh, you won't like yourself very much. And, and so now is the time in which one um, is summoned to, to address where one is. And, and being accountable and addressing my life with as much courage as I can manage and as much as faithfulness to my values is what it means to be a grown-up. And then that's what I pass on to others. That's the person I share in my partnership. That's, that's the model I give my children. It's my role as a citizen in a democracy, you know, to show up and, and, and be who we are. And it's extraordinarily difficult to do it, but it's, it's worse if we don't do it. Jim, this program's called Insights at the Edge, and one of the things I'm always curious about is what the edge is that people who are teaching are working on. And in terms of this idea of being a spiritual grown-up, I'd be curious to know for you what the edge is, what you're working with personally. Personally? Um, you mean me as opposed to a therapist? You, you Jim Hollis, the person. Okay. Uh, well, I'm working at all the issues we've talked about because they never go away. I'm still asking the question on a daily basis, and, and frankly, my work uh, sort of asks that I ask that of myself. Where am I being avoidant? Where might I be in service to old patterns of adaptation? What new life is calling to me? Um, Yates wrote it beautifully once when uh, he went through a series of changes in his life and somebody was criticizing it. He said, um, you know, my friends have what I do wrong whenever I remake my song. They should know what issue is at stake. It is myself that I remake. And so I think the work of remaking ourselves goes on throughout this journey up to our last moments. And um, I think one of the most important things we all have to deal with is issues of, of aging and changes in the body and our social status and so forth. And as we go through these, there will be new tasks that come up and um, new challenges. And, um, you know, I'm trying to um, face them with as much insight and courage as I can manage. That's, that's all we can ask of a person. And um, I think at times I might ask that maybe too much of myself, but um, that, that's another complex to wrestle with. So I guess the good news and the bad news is we never run out of material to work with. There's always something else that uh, life is asking of us, a new place for growth and development, and uh, a new place uh, to claim territory that we hadn't explored before. Wonderful. I've been speaking today with James Hollis, who has created a program with Sounds True, a six-CD learning series called Through a Dark Wood, Finding Meaning in the Second Half of Life. And I'd like to thank you so much for being with us and sharing a bit about your work. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, and I thank you in return. For SoundsTrue.com, this is Tammy Simon. SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey.